welcome to the Office 365 Developer Podcast, the only show focused on Office 365 development where Rich and I talk to the experts from all over the globe coding on the Office 365 Developer Platform. For more information on Office 365 Development, please visit dev.office.com and follow us on the hashtag Office365Dev. Okay, welcome to episode 84 of the Office 365 Developer Podcast. Jeremy Thake here again, building one, nice and cold here. Totally sick of seeing my family talk about how hot it is in Australia at the minute. Uh, I think they're saying yesterday it was 48 degrees Celsius, whereas here we're barely touching 37 degrees Fahrenheit. I have with me Brendan Ford on the show from Provoke, who is a New Zealander that he's actually moving here, so that's a bit of a crazy thing to do. Well, hey, you know, you've got to get out of little old Kiwiland at some stage in your life, and why, you know, why not uh, get up to sunny Seattle? That's right. I mean, I mean, you're a small island off, you know, as part of Australia down there. Yeah, some some people say that we are the uh, the extra continent of Australia, but I, I guess at the end of the day, you know, you've always got to look to, look to your brothers and your sisters around the Pacific and, and be supportive. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you're coming over. I know we've we've been friends for a long time, and it's uh, good to get you on the show to talk about this stuff because it's um, it's actually one of my favourite demos to do. And we've promised this open source for a while after demoing it nearly a year ago, and it's finally happened, which is great. So, politics internally, getting stuff shipped, usual usual stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's certainly great to be along and and get to share some of the uh, some of the work that we've done and talk about it and and the rationale of why we did it and how we got there. Cool. So before we jump into the actual interview, there's been quite a few coil updates this week. Liam Cleary, who is probably best known for hacking the internet every time you go to an event, if you see a a Wi-Fi network that looks a little bit obscure or a little bit too close to the existing Wi-Fi network name for a conference, it's usually Liam trying to get you trick you to uh, get on his Wi-Fi network, and then in his Wi-Fi hacking sessions, he'll actually show you what you're surfing on the web at that point in time. So in that ilk, what he's actually done is built a uh, a little blog post here um, that goes into really nice detail on Postman, which is a, a way that you can kind of very much like you can with Fiddler uh, replicate uh, calls uh, in the HTTP stack. But he goes into a lot of detail on how you can like kind of capture the calls that you do within a in a normal website and then kind of intercept them and then repeat them again and then obviously change what your calls are to see what comes back so and he's got some great screenshots in here as well he's obviously another dude that has snag it and he's doing all the nice background shadows on his his screen screen grabs there so if you are playing a lot with microsoft graph um, postman i find it really useful along with fiddler um, to kind of inspect that and be able to play back and see how that graph works along with um, graphexplorer2.azurewebsites.net which is a a tool that engineering actually used to demonstrate internally as we're kind of releasing things into the beta endpoint on Microsoft Graph. And then Paul Schaeflein has been doing a bunch of training work for us with the education team and um, has been playing a lot with the Microsoft Graph to demonstrate it to all the people that are building kind of education type solutions for the Microsoft Graph. And um, he's put together this little, little nice code snippet here in .NET, uh, all in C Sharp here, that basically catches the 49 responses gracefully um, and tries again on a set interval, which is a nice way of kind of rather than just swallowing errors that maybe come up from over calling the graph and, and, and different things, just some kind of standards. I've raised this with uh, the engineering team internally, and we're actually going to put some guidance out ourselves. But for now, if you're doing things like that, it's great to kind of have that snippet that you can grab now. And then as we come back to that in the guidance, we'll, we'll add that into the documentation. And then in addition to that, 
Um, Scott Hillier actually has written out a bunch of code samples on itunity.com around Angular 2. So I've, I've noticed that Scott's been blogging a fair bit about Angular 2, which is obviously still in preview. Um, and connecting that via OpenID Connect with Azure Active Directory to call the graph. So if you're doing any Angular work, uh, you've been playing in Angular 1, uh, where people like Waldeck and Andrew Connell and Scott Hillier have been blogging around with the Microsoft Graph, this is a great way to get stuck into Angular 2 as well. And then Steve Peschke, who um, is very renowned internally at Microsoft for um, being a, one of the experts from a development perspective on SharePoint and um, the, our Microsoft Graph, he's actually blogged uh, from an external perspective now because unfortunately he left Microsoft um, very recently and he's building some really nice products on top of the ecosystem. But he's blogged about the new Azure uh, converged auth model, which we call V2. Uh, right now, Azure AD... The, the, what's genuinely available is for Office 365 accounts. But the converged auth model of V2, which the Azure AD team are building, will allow us to call the Microsoft Graph um, not just with organizational accounts or work and school accounts, i.e. Office 365, but also with personal accounts, i.e. Outlook.com, Hotmail.com, and so forth. So um, Steve's done a really good write-up of where that is right now, pros and cons of it. And in actual fact, we kind of shared this internally with the engineering teams and a bunch of guys in Azure AD and the Microsoft Graph team have actually commented. And Steve's done a great job of kind of updating some information on there and fighting an engineer's hard on actually, no, I think I'm right. And we've got some really good ground there. And so that's a nice kind of written up article on on where that is at the moment in, in, in preview. Just to be very clear there, it is a preview technology. And then Vesa, who we had on the show last week, he's been doing a ton of stuff on Office 365 PNP. And uh, they did a weekly webcast again with Paolo Pasari, and he actually did an introduction into the Microsoft Graph as it stands right now with Azure AD v1, uh, talking about authentication and how you can call the graph and how you use the management portal to do those things. Uh, one thing did come up, Azure as a whole is pushing the preview portal, uh, or sorry, the new portal very hard. And if you go into manage.windowsazure.com, you know, it, it will kind of force you, or it doesn't force you, it gives you the, you know, try out the new portal. Strong and recommendation. Thank you, Brent. It's a strong recommendation. But unfortunately, Azure Active Directory is not there yet. So the reason all of our hands-on labs that we've just updated to like Visual Studio 2015 use manage.windowsazure.com, which is the portal that's been around for a while, is because that's where you have to create Azure AD applications. Um, so once it's in a new portal, yeah, we'll flip our training. But yeah, if you don't find Azure AD in the new portal, that's because you need to go to manage.windowsazure.com. Um, so it was a bit of a takeaway this week, though. I didn't realize it was out there in the in the world. You do a fair bit with PNP, right? With what you do with SharePoint customers globally? Yeah, yeah. so we've got development teams sitting down in New Zealand and in the US, and one of our challenges is always as new, new things come out and we're obviously trying to keep pace with stuff is finding sort of valuable resources or sensible resources. So really for us and for our development teams, they've been leveraging PNP heavily to, to understand approaches of how we can build ship and ship solutions. And what's also really beneficial for us is that when we go back to our customers and explain how we're building, we're able to reference PMP and say, well, this is you know, sort of the ground that we're using to build our solutions. So it gives them confidence as well. Yeah, and I think where the PNT, PMP team have gone with, we were kind of committing directly into repos and things were changing quite a bit and having this dev branch notion where people submit PRs into it and then on a monthly basis, the PMP core team kind of triage that into a, a ship monthly build. 
and then there's like a monthly call where they go through what's shipped. It's a good cadence for people to kind of any kind of service integrator or partner ISV to kind of get a a good pace of okay, this is what's new in the core.NET DLLs or this is what's new in the partner pack for site provisioning and, and so forth. Yeah, and what we find as a business is, you know, we're always trying to develop frameworks of how we do stuff and how we deliver things. And so in situations in the early days when PMP wasn't really there or, or was missing some stuff, we've gone through and developed approaches. And now what we're doing is going back and re- revisiting our approaches and taking out parts of our framework and replacing it with, you know, sort of ways that have been done in PMP yeah, as well. Yeah, so. that's really good to hear. It's getting that use. And we see it in the download numbers on GitHub. like And also, like, I think the monthly call uh, at the beginning of this week, they had like 200 people in there or something. So there's a lot of demand at that level to kind of get in there and see what's happening on a monthly basis around PMP. And then um, from an open source type world, uh, on top of the PNP, Stefan Bauer and I have been working pretty hard on the Yeoman generator for Office. So the ability to create an Office add-in uh, just on a Mac or PC without Visual Studio uh, using command line uh, via Node and, and Yeoman generators. And one of the things that we were trying to do was replace the Node web server with browser I.O., which is a more efficient web server, gives you a bit more telemetry, a bit more control. But there seems to be quite a few dependencies uh, to get that stuff running on Windows. On a Mac, it's no problem because Python exists on a Mac by default, which a lot of people don't realize. On Windows, it doesn't. And so there's all these weird other things you have to install to get that running. So we made an executive decision that let's not make this part of the tool because it's too complicated for a Windows flow. So what Stefan's done is written a blog post that explains, look, if you're using Yeoman Generator but you'd prefer to use Browser.io instead of the Node server, the steps to follow. So um, if you are using Yeoman Generator, we'd love your help on if you use Browser.io already and um, you feel like that would be better, um, I'd, I'd love to have your feedback on that. And then another one, um, Andrew Connell, who is heading up the NG Office UI Fabric, which is essentially a bunch of directives for Angular um, on top of Office UI Fabric. And we'll talk about Fabric in the show. This great open source community effort. And I believe some of your team are actually well helping Andrew on this too. Yeah, we've got a guy down in, uh, down in Wellington that's contributing to, uh, to the project with Andrew and he sort of got in on it early. And sort of for us, what, what's great is he's, he's doing sort of a little bit of in time and a bit of out, time, out, of, uh, out of hours time to pull, them together, pull the directives together with Andrew. So it's great to see someone sitting in New Zealand working on a project with uh, AC up in the US. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's how I kind of got my legs when I first started working with, I mean, back then it was like Chris Johnson when he was back at Microsoft and I was a, a, a mere consultant in the world in Australia. But, um, you know, collaborating with him on things and a bunch of other people. So I, I think the, the time barrier and, and technology seemed to kind of eliminate a lot of that. And I know with AC, and I, I've kind of implemented some of these things as well, is how he manages the GitHub repo and not do anything in email and do everything in GitHub. So it's, you know, you're totally exposed and design decisions about whatever you're doing in the open source project is being made in the issues or um, in the wikis or in the markdown files is really useful for people that aren't in those emails or the Skype calls that go on. So, And, and the great thing for us as well is sort of Roland's actually getting to work with somebody outside of our business on a community project and so he's getting a different experience and getting different insights into the world and you know Andrew never sort of lacks any uh any sort of suggestions or uh fear of sharing sharing his opinions so uh, 
old uh, Roland's certainly uh, learning a bunch of stuff on yeah. the way through as well. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one who has to do it with AC than it sounds. I'm yeah. joking, AC, we love you. He's inspiring! <laughs> yeah. um, so as credit here, uh, the implementation of label uh, has been done now, and the implementation of button has been done, which is part of the UI fabric. And um, trust me that the guy, I'm going to totally muck this name up. Actually, Brendan, do you want to try and pronounce that? No, that's all yours. Okay. He's from Poland, and I would say Jersey, but I'm sure that's probably got like a Hersey or Hersey or something. Can you use uh, Siri or something? Uh, I don't or know. Kutan? And then C-Z-O-P-E-K, Chopek, maybe. Let's I run mean, with that. Let's go with that. Hersey Chopek. I am so sorry for totally obliterating your name, but, you know, this is all we've got to go with right now. Looks like he's got a bunch of GitHub projects he's worked on as well in the past, which is great. But, um, yeah, so I really appreciate all the open contributions there. And Andrew is looking for more people to get involved. He's got a big list of bounties on um, what other things need doing as well. So um, definitely, definitely check that out as well. So with that, we've got a bunch of stuff we want to get through today. Keep those contributions coming on the blogosphere. If you're not hearing yourself being mentioned in the show or um, I guess the good thing from kind of web search engine bait is that we link to your blog post from blogsoffice.com which is a very highly hit property so it definitely gets your hits up on your blog we know we've brought down a few blogs in the past where they're hosting them on the wrong kind of scale of cloud server so it does work so please make sure you let me know so that we can promote your stuff some days successful can be success can be painful <laughs> that's right and expensive well never mind <laughs> so um welcome to the show again um, who are you? Brendan Ford. Uh, today, currently living down in, uh, down in New Zealand in Auckland, and uh, I work for Provoke Solutions as the, the COO. Um, and I guess I've been involved in Provoke since day one and a whole bunch of different jobs uh, through the business. But I guess sort of one of my large focuses currently is cloud and specifically Office 365 uh, and Azure and the solutions that we're building for customers. And also we do a reasonable amount of work with uh, Microsoft up here as well. And you're pretty well known in the community as well, speaking and blogging in the past. And yeah, yeah, so I've done a reasonable amount of community work down in down in New Zealand, uh, predominantly, uh, and running user groups down there. So the user group that I'm involved with, uh, been involved with running in Auckland, is the Cloud and Infrastructure User Group. Yeah. And so basically, we just turn up and talk a whole bunch about Azure, about Office 365, more from an IT Pro kind of standpoint and business standpoint. There's a bit of dev content in there when we can find a, a dev person to come along and talk. Um, but yeah, it's great fun getting along and sharing experiences and insights. And typically, you get a great chat going. And you, you learn something new every time you have a beer and a pizza. And, and what's the adoption like of the cloud down there? I mean, I, I know because I've got lots of friends down there that there was some you know tragic incidents down there with earthquakes and so forth in previous years. Did that affect anyone in terms of? taking the cloud seriously and kind of disaster recovery and so forth or yeah certainly like um we sort of do a a sort of quite a broad sort of type of work and um we've dealt with some smaller customers and there are certainly some smaller uh, county firms was one example where basically after the the wellington earthquake which was a smaller smaller um earthquake than the than the christchurch one they they basically lifted and shifted straight into office 365 yeah fundamentally they they realize their single point of failure was a server under a desk yeah um so it does take uh some events for people to understand that hey maybe there's there's a different way to do things and once they get their head around it um and and get everything moved 
life's a whole bunch easier. And yeah. I guess not having to continually do SharePoint upgrades, that's yeah. got to be a blessing that everybody wants to look forward to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I did that a few times when I was a consultant. I'm glad I don't have to do any of that anymore. And um, so you, you do, a, uh, I mean, you do work for direct for customers, but you do do a lot of work being based in kind of the Seattle area as well with one of your offices with Microsoft. And so one of the projects you've worked on with us is the Clause Library. What, how did that come about and what did that involve up front? Yeah, so we, um, we, Clause Library really came about by working with uh, the LCA team, which is the legal team at Microsoft. And really, at the end of the day, the legal team spent a lot of time in Word and uh, continuously having to get clauses, thus the name of clause libraries, and yeah. insert them into documents and review them. And so what they were looking for was a simple way to reuse IP fundamentally, and that's kind yeah. of what clause library is, and reuse IP that's been signed off before um, and it's been validated. So thus the creation of the idea for clause library. And I guess with the uh, add-in model as it is today, you know, things have come such a long way from the old VBA days. Right. You probably would have done it with VBA in the past yeah, yeah. and had some kind of hickory solution. And, and so the notion of it is, is I've got a document, it could be an existing legal document um, on the right-hand side in the task pane, I've essentially got this list of terms, clauses I can use, but you can group them, you can favorite them. Yeah, so basically, <clears throat> yeah, you, so you're, you're in, your, in your task pane, in your panel, you've got a, a list of clauses, and they're, they're grouped at the first, at the high level, and then you've got the clause below, and, and fundamentally, you can insert a clause straight into your document, uh, or alternatively, if you've actually got a clause that you think's great, uh, you just highlight the paragraph and add it to the clause library and put it under a group. Um, and so that basically stores it into SharePoint and a list in the back end. Yeah, and, and so part of that notion of um, the interaction, I, what were they doing before? Were they literally opening up existing Word documents and copying and pasting from document to document? Yeah, people uh, people had their own database, if we wanted to call it that. Um, so, you know, what people were doing is having a massive Word document yeah. with a whole bunch of clauses in it. And so they just opened up that. Word document and search through and try and find the cause. Right, right. Um, or going to some other solution. So, in effect, getting out of the tool that they're working in. So, they're working in Word. That's what's making them productive. Yeah. So, the idea is to keep them in their productive place, which right. is Word. And, and I'd heard another story where they kind of grabbed a document and they did a find and replace and it missed something and then they got in, you know, like it just kind of ruined that flow for them. Yeah, and so and it's so, integrity of content. Right. And one of the other things that is in Clause Library is search. So they're able yeah. to search through their clauses and filter them down um, to find the clause that they were looking for. Whereas you think about a massive Word document, obviously you can use search, but it's not a particularly slick way to filter. And so you mentioned SharePoint. So the clauses that were, it, when it fetches them into that task pane, that's all stored in the SharePoint site. Uh, it is, I mean, it looked like there was more flexibility there in terms of not just being one SharePoint list. You could have different lists for different sets of terms depending on the teams. Yeah, so you can create as many clause libraries as you want. In clause, SharePoint? Yeah, yeah. And so you just create a clause library and it creates a set of lists. Right. Um, so there's a you know a groups list and a list of clauses and there's favorites and such like. So in effect, so it's just lists. I think off the top of my head it's about four lists that it creates. And if you go create another clause library, it's going to create another four lists. Right, right. And and, and the nice thing about it is, is when you do demo this, if you go to GitHub, um, the link's in the podcast uh, show notes. But if you go to the GitHub link and you clone it down, there's only a few little steps. One is you just have to create a SharePoint site and put that in when you want to use that site to create these lists in. But all that setup is actually done within the add-in itself. The only thing you have to do in the code of the add-in is essentially go and grab your client ID in secret 
so that it can then call, uh, get the consent and call back through to SharePoint to go and create those lists and fetch that data from the list and write clauses to that list if, if you, you're doing the push to it. And, and one of the other good things as well, because we're storing data inside SharePoint, we can manage security in SharePoint. So you know, if you've got an HR team and you've got a legal team, for example, and maybe they, don't, they shouldn't see the clauses that each team's got, yeah. then in effect you can separate that. That security with SharePoint rather right. than having to mess around with that in the app. And so you, you said something about approval. It, is it using like approval workflows or anything at the SharePoint list level? Or so so currently it's not. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's that's the beauty of the solution that we've got. Right. So you've got the magic of what you're doing in Word, where you're leveraging clauses. But there'd be nothing stopping you uh, putting a workflow approval process on, right. a, on, on top of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then you could modify the code that said only fetch me the published approved. Mm clauses, but you could create a clause and make it a draft, and then exactly. that could email whoever owns the clause library to approve it first. Yep. That's really neat. And so, from that aspect with SharePoint as well, I think the, the other benefit of storing stuff in SharePoint lists is you've got all that audit history there as well. So, who created the clause, who edited the clause, when it was created. You could turn versioning on if you wanted. Right. And so, that way you can see as these clauses change... Um, what's going on in there as well. Yep. And, and I guess um, and it means you don't need to bother setting up another, another data store. You know, you don't have to manage a SQL database right. or whatever it may be. You know, one of the things we have talked about during the, the clause library development cycle was conceptually about swapping out that data store over time. Yeah. So, you know, if you wanted to go to a SQL database or if you wanted to use DocDB or something like that. Yeah. Then so you still get that great word experience that people love, but you maybe not tied to SharePoint online. Yeah, yeah, and that again, you could interface it and just have SharePoint as one implementation, but DocDB or whatever could be another one. Exactly, that's really neat. And so, I mean, the benefit of this demo is that all you need is is a word client. In this case, it's Visual Studio. So you're just setting up the client ID in secret and F5ing in. And then you just need a SharePoint online environment where you can go and create those things. So it's a really nice demo to show productivity from a word perspective using the task pane. But one of the nice bits was um, that we did a fair amount of work there from the perspective of making it really easy to kind of put the SharePoint site URL into the Word add-in mm -hmm. and configuration is in Word rather than kind of weird hard-coded stuff inside the code sample. We've made it as kind of ready to go as possible for people to use this. Yeah, and in our first incarnation of the clause library, it was a SharePoint app. Um, and what we discovered is the deployment of that was kind of just too complex. Yeah. And so that's kind of why we've put it on its head and now it's a Word app. So it's driven by Word, but yeah. it just happens that SharePoint lists are the, where all the data is stored. Yeah, exactly. And so on top of that kind of like ease of setup, you know, you're, you're being able to demo this in Word. I think one thing that where I've shown this at keynotes, uh, also in EBCs, the executive briefings we do up here with, with our largest customers, is immediately people go, wow, I... The legal team could use this, but I think my sales team could really do with this. Like I know as a consultant when I was building all the RFP documents and RFQ documents and, you know, you're grabbing stuff from all the other ones before it of this is why I'm com our team's competent in blah and show us experience of eh, and here's my case study blurb. Having all this stored in SharePoint lists and just being kind of injected in and build this document on the fly um, is a really powerful scenario. We probably should have called it uh, cut and paste matic or something. <laughs> yeah, that would have definitely given it. I mean, you probably never find it in the search, though, would no, you? No, probably not. So that I think from that aspect is, although we've called it the clause library because it was built for the legal team internally at Microsoft, the scenarios are much broader than that. Definitely. And um, so I'm really excited to see, well, now we open source this, how that, how this goes. And, and credit to you guys and working with um, 
Daniel Canning, who also did the Matter Center uh, from uh, the legal team, on having it so that it's very flexible and configurable, so that it doesn't have to be just for clauses, it can be for whatever, whatever you like. And it's just the realization about how much time people spend in the office client tools and actually landing solutions where they live. That, that's what we're trying to achieve, and I think Clause Library just demonstrates the, the first example. And so now the challenge is for people to say, well, what else can I do? How can I make people more productive in, in the office environment, whether it's Excel, whether it's Word, whether it's Outlook, whatever? Yeah. And and so um, when I started, I was actually recording a demo of this yesterday because we want to get a YouTube trailer up for the sample. Uh, one of the things I did notice is when we store the data inside the SharePoint list, like obviously you've got like the owner of the clause, which is one originally created there, which could be changed if you want to, you know, date and time metadata is default in SharePoint. And then the actual content is stored as open XML in the, the, in the column inside SharePoint. Now, open XML to the human eye, uh, so it's I mean, you know, that's like you're in about 10 fireballs in and, mm. you know, the party's just getting started and then you go to code. There are ways you can kind of grok the open XML. The easiest way is just kind of copy and paste it in and then um, into the tooling that's inside of Office. There's a kind of an open XML word developer tool section. We can kind of paste it and it'll put it in in a human readable form back into Word. But essentially you can treat that like your... You know, you're dumping that into SharePoint. It's not meant to be ever be read by SharePoint. It's only meant to be read back into the the Word at the stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I guess because it retains all the formatting and and such like that you experience in Word. You know, there is a a scenario where you say, hey, I want to bulk load some clauses into Clause Library, and you could just load kind of vanilla text into a SharePoint list. But then after that, if you went to put formatting on it, it's going to kind of float out again. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So that was one thing I, I did notice. And obviously, you know, there could be an open source initiative that if you wouldn't want to go in the approval workflow route, like them looking at the open XML and going, oh, that's okay, it's probably not going to work. So you no. probably want to build a web interface around like viewing those things and making that visible so that you could actually preview the, what it, that snippet is and approve it or make edits to it. And, and, I, and I think in that scenario, like when we're talking about RFPs, for example, you know, salespeople like stuff to look pretty, and yeah. so there's probably a bunch of formatting in there. Right, right, right. So the approval process would be as much about... Yeah, the, uh, look and feel. The content and, as it is about the look and feel. So you right. need to preserve that look and feel. And also, like, embedded images and so forth. OpenXML handles that, in, handles that in different ways, so you'd have to kind of work out how you're going to do that as well. So for the clause library aspect, it does make sense because mainly legal teams just like filling up documents with lots of blurb that no one's ever going to read. And, and, they and love, yet we'll sign our life away. And they love to bold stuff. <laughs> and lots of bold stuff and usually just to distract people away from the really really important terms that you miss because you didn't read the, those but you saw the bold stuff sneaky people those. we love legal teams really um, and then so that was kind of the first thing I captured which is in terms of the open XML aspect so that's something if you're not used to Office it's a big deal the second one was how did you do authentication from the Office Word add-in which is HTML, JavaScript, running in a page. I think you guys use ASP.NET MVC as the web platform. How do you call SharePoint? How are you doing that? So for us, uh, we've done a bunch of different things, and the, the authentication side of things was probably one of the, the bigger, trickier things to get through. Yeah. Getting your head around also, obviously, registering the app in Azure AD as well, and then you need to do that, and the permissions that you're going to provide with it for reading and writing to, to SharePoint was important. Um, and we're using SignalR, to manage, uh, obviously, the authentication process as well. Right. So maybe obvious to you, but I will go into that. First, I want to touch on you are using Azure Active Directory to get an application that you've, you're creating. 
you're requesting permissions to SharePoint Online, basically read and write, because that's what you're going to be doing to all this, whatever site collection your user happens to pick. But you're not calling Microsoft Graph, because Microsoft Graph doesn't have SharePoint list endpoint yet. No. So you're going to, you know, Jeremy's call tenant.sharepoint.com slash underscore API slash whatever to get to the list data. But you're actually using the Azure AD token um, to do that. So, yeah, so when you dig into the code, just bear in mind that it, it isn't a graph yet, but the intention is once SharePoint list data is available on the graph, that we'll actually flip the sample to do that. That's but cool. it's a good example of like using Azure AD token to be able to reach into SharePoint from an office word add-in. Yeah, I think that's like at the moment we're living in a bit of a, uh, a world that's progressing. And so that's right. You're doing some stuff that's sort of the old way, for want of a better phrase, with yeah. doing stuff with SharePoint. It'll be great to see when it's uh, far more unified. And then, and then the other thing, which again is kind of like this, the journey is uh, the Signal R approach. Now, the reason you're doing the Signal R is why? Like, why do we need Signal R in here? Because that seems like a big bit of framework to throw into a project. So, so somehow we have to manage the mechanism of someone typing in their details and then doing the auth prompt. And uh, so okay. basically we get the auth prompt and we need to deal with the scenarios where people are signing in uh, straight into Office 365 by their Office 365 identity or using single sign-on with you know ADFS and such like. So there's a couple of different scenarios of how we auth. Yeah. And so when someone signs in in the, in the pane, it's, it's got to pop up that auth experience. Right. And we've got to be able to manage, trap that, and then get back into the app. So the first time you do like an F5 in the task pane, it comes up. Uh, loads up the web app inside that iframe and it goes signing in and then once it signs in if it can't find the credentials that it's cached it'll pop up into the login screen for azure and make you type in username password for office 365 hit enter and then you'll get this consent screen that says this add-in needs access to sharepoint read and write we click ok that window then closes and then, then the app uh, starts to work. Yes, we did have some testing where that thing didn't close and it wasn't talking to it. But the Sigma R is essentially it posts an event that the iframed web page is looking at, and then that pop-up window closes, and at the same time the iframe window is looking for that message, okay. and then goes, "Oh, great! That pop-up window has done what it needed to do, and this is the information. So now I can go ahead and." call SharePoint with that credentials that the pop-up window grabbed. Yep, now I can get on and get my, get my yeah. information back from the so, list. So we totally know that this is not the best way of handling things in Office right now, and and, and so the Office Accessibility team are working on some scenarios. Uh, what, we'll do, we, what we decided to do is rather than kind of wait until those scenarios are ready, uh, which is not far away, it's kind of build time frames, is we wanted to get this sample out the, out the door and then we'll actually do a, um, a pull request on this to actually implement the, the, the approach that we're going to say is this is the standard way of handling auth inside an Office add-in, um, which will guarantee will work across all Office clients. Now, this does work uh, not just across Windows as well, Windows Office client. That actually works on the iPad too, right? Yeah, so sort of one of the things that we, uh, one of the pieces of work that we did before uh, actually getting it up into into the GitHub uh, project was to go through and refactor it and ensure that it would work on an iPad. Because really for us, a scenario is a person out in the field and actually having a line of business application on the iPad. It makes yeah. total sense. And so, you know, and it, it kind of validates why Word exists on the iPad. So if someone's out in the field and they can pull in sort of, you know, clauses or quotes. Right, because they don't want to sit there and type on the iPad, yeah. but they want to be able to grab things from whatever yeah. system. That on-screen keyboard's awesome, but it'll be great <laughs> if I didn't have to use it as much, and so the clause library makes sense for that. Yeah, yeah, okay. And 
and then so that kind of mobility thing, I'm guessing there was some refactoring of that word add-in as it stood originally to make it work on the iPad? Yeah, fundamentally it didn't. So there was some refactoring. <laughs> it just didn't work. It just didn't work. So, yeah, Safari didn't like it is yeah. kind of the simplest way to look at it. Okay. And so we implemented Fabric and also went through and tidied up some other so errors that we're having. So there was definitely a, a bit of work to do, but it wasn't massive. Yeah, and so Fabric, I mean, it does look a lot better now, and I'm guessing, fa- I mean, Fabric seems to do that magic fairy dust that makes everything look a lot better even if you aren't a designer um, but I'm guessing because Fabric was built in case of not just working on Windows but working on iPad that kind of gave you some of that stuff for free yeah yeah it gave us a head start yeah okay great but then there was still a ton of like not a ton of work but there was work needed just to kind of it was you know the old classic as a dev going through and debugging stuff and yep. finding problems and fixing them and you don't know until you've shipped whether it works and you know shipped into the environment yeah. whether it works or not yeah I mean you committed to no problem we'll get it working in the iPad and then there was a ton of emails that flowed through in the following weeks going uh, making progress but we have it out there now yes. and it's a great sample that you can um, you know our field will do this to death I'm guessing to promote the with the iPad clients for sure and, and one of the reasons that we actually did the uh, the iPad work is because we were doing work with another team uh Deployment planning services. Yeah. And what we wanted to be able to do was provide a scenario for someone that's running a deployment planning services workshop inside a customer to show how the iPad and Word could work in their organization and to give them a realistic example. Yeah, because sometimes it's hard. Like, I mean, I, I honestly, I, I have Word, Excel, PowerPoint installed on my Android, my Note 5, and it's a big device, but it's not like I would immediately ever go there to do any kind of document creation. creation i would definitely go in there and open up powerpoint decks that i'm reviewing before i go into a, a presentation or reviewing excel sheets of budget or whatever but it's not something i'd heavily kind of do any kind of creation with because again the keyboard's not very great on it um on an ipad it's different because you kind of get the keyboards that you can bluetooth mm-hmm. into but i think the more add-ins get involved in kind of helping facilitate creation or adjustments, I think it's really useful as that scenario where you just got big buttons in your task pane that do things in, in the actual content of those documents. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's enabling people to start to live the, the mobile dream, really, or the yeah. mobility dream of I can do stuff on the run and yeah. and I can be productive. But I, for me, the other kind of killer bit is reaching into lob, you know, reaching into a line of business system that right. may be sitting in, the, in a cloud or on-premises and surfacing that data in a secure, trusted way through to an iPad. Because you're building the ad in yourself and you're hosting it in Azure probably, uh, you're managing where that data's going and how it's getting there. And so all of a sudden we can now actually put the data in the hands of people on any device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yeah, it makes are. sense. And with the adding commands coming to the iPad as well, the ability to have buttons on the ribbons and the command bars where I could like hook that button up to injecting content in that was you know very specific to a particular workforce within your organization would be really powerful as well. And I'll be meaning to get my hands on an iPad Pro and just see how this actually well, runs on that. Yeah, in actual fact, I'm sharing an office right now, which I won't be by the end of the week, although I do love Bodo. He's from Switzerland, an awesome guy. He's in charge of... And it's fascinating, like, we're in marketing and that this, our roles couldn't be any more different. He looks after all of the apps... Gold. On yeah, he just stores gold. Um, he looks after all of the apps on Android and iPad marketplaces. Oh wow! So he just got a massive shipment of devices for. He's only just started. So an iPad Pro turned up this morning, an iPad Air turned up, and a new Android device turned up. And because he's having to test the store experiences and play with the apps and make sure engineering are doing their job to promote them properly mm-hmm. and make sure Apple isn't doing anything crazy with the store listings. And that iPad Pro is a nice device. Yeah. 
That's uh, actually a guy that I've been hunting to find out who he actually is because I want to talk see? to him. See, maybe he should come. Look to at dinner. that. This he should come to dinner tonight. This, this is this is how these things happen. Yeah. It's all about connecting people, right? Exactly. I mean, the day that someone goes, I can confidently navigate Microsoft and have no issues. I think the world will just cease to exist. That's uh, never. And, and that, no that'll one, never happen. No one will ever be able to build an app or have any help whatsoever to that too. No. Um, and then the last one, which you kind of touched on a little bit, was deployment. In this world right now, how, how would you how would this scenario work where the, this adding wants to be made available to the, the, all the legal team? Yeah, cool. So I guess there's a couple of different deployment scenarios that that we've been using. So yeah, sort of the the first one is kind of the manual deployment where you're kind of going through the UAT phase, should we say? You're wanting to test stuff. So we've been using the manifest file yeah. and um, setting up trusted locations inside Word. So yeah, know, so it's sitting on their machine and they're looking at it. That's not really too much of an enterprise deployment scenario, should we say? Yeah. Uh, so the next uh, the next one is using the app catalog in SharePoint Online or in SharePoint. Yeah. Um, and basically setting up in there. So once we put it into the app catalog, then obviously people can consume it. Yes, sign in and go and add. At, and at that point, you've got the manifest and you've got the website that runs all the code. Yep. At that point, you're dropping the website onto Azure and not just running it locally on your machine. Well, and so, yeah, the, in our full you know, deployment scenario, basically, yeah, it's running in an Azure PaaS site, basically. Yeah. Um, but then the manifest file, uh, manifest file, in the first case, sitting on the local machine. Yeah. In the kind of enterprise deployment scenario, we want to have it running in an app catalog mm-hmm. so people can self-service. And how were you testing on the iPad at that originally, like locally? Um, so in the iPad scenario, we just basically set up with a developer account, and so we're manually pushing it straight to the iPad. Under you know, when you're basically in Word, you've got the developer section, so you can see that it's a developer push. Yeah, yeah, and that's when you have to use things like iTunes and scream yeah. a little bit to get the file in the. To, to be honest, it was actually a lot simpler than what I thought it was going to be. It was actually okay. a pretty painless deployment uh, model. Yeah, I, I haven't done that since we first demoed the iPad yeah. um, in add-ins, but I think with some of the updates that are coming to the Office iPad and Office Mac as well, there'll be a lot more of those demos going that you'll see. And in with the, the uh, as well. yeah, and in the GitHub side of things, we've got a bunch of guidance about setting up it as well and stepping people. Yeah, through, I did so. see that. That's good that we've got that kind of set up. So that's one thing. Like you can go there right now, clone the repo. And um, basically, I'll walk you through the steps of you know, opening this up in Visual Studio, going into Azure Management, getting a client ID in secret, and getting the right permissions on the application, creating your SharePoint site collection in your Office 365 tenant, and then F5ing the baby and getting it running. Yeah, I think there's sort of this two two kind of different mindsets in setting it up as well. So the Azure AD side of things and registering the app and Azure AD and setting that up, yeah. it's kind of a little bit more of an infrastructure task in some respects versus a dev task. Yeah. And so we've got kind of video guidance on how to do that versus obviously doing the stuff in Visual Studio, which is clearly a dev task, and that's, you know, that's bread and butter for any dev. Which reminds me, I need to upload those videos to YouTube. If you get right onto that, that'd be great. <laughs> Can you give me more work to do now? I thought this podcast was going to be it and I'll be at the door. Well, yeah, we've, yeah, we've got to Gotta be somewhere. We we do, yeah. Yes, I'm getting ready for that beer for sure. Mm, so I think that covers it off. I'm uh, I'm really excited about this one. I I've got a funny feeling that this is going to be the one that everyone is sick of seeing in a year's time because it is just mind blowingly good at showing an add in in Word. Yep. But it will be the oh, not the clause library again. I, I've already seen this a thousand times. Stop it. I guess the uh, you know what would be great to see in a year is actually where it's ended up and what people have done. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Clause library v seven or something. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think as I've demoed it, you can see people's heads kind of spinning on wow, I can use this and blah blah blah. And I think we've got to work out 
whether we branch it for certain scenarios or and, and try and keep the core master branch as you know generic and configurable as possible. But I'm guessing that some will go off on a tangent for a particular vertical that might need to be branched, and we want to keep all the branches there. Yeah. But I think it would be great to get the community contributions in there for a bunch of things on this as well. Yeah, it would be good to have many people to sort of lighten the load of it moving forward and get, you know, get it moving faster. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on the show, mate. And um, we'll uh, we'll definitely get you on later on. I know there's a bunch of other projects you've got going on in and around this space of building these kind of hero demos that showcase what we can do with the Office platform. So uh, thanks very much for your time and um, enjoy the rest of your stay here in Seattle before the big move. Champion, thank I'm you very much. To, uh, go find you one of those Office rain jackets as a welcome to the sunny Seattle thing. Hey, that stuff about Seattle always raining, I, I believe it's a lie. It's a myth. Like, <laughs> rain, it rains more in Auckland. <laughs> it probably does. It just feels like it rains all the time. Oh, sorry, Little Australia. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Look, get, it, get it right. Come Little on. Sydney. Yeah, I mean, and we did the whole show without any sheep jokes, too. Yeah, yeah thanks for that. <laughs> all right. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed the show. We are still open for you know who you want to hear from, what products you want to hear about, uh, more details on certain topic areas and challenges you're having. Um, I'd love to hear from partners that are building on top of us and talk to them in the same milk I've just done with Brendan around. You know, like what have you built? What does it solve? What were some of the hurdles you had? We are totally open to kind of showing warts and all as you've seen from this interview here and you know being open that we will kind of fill those gaps but we just want to make sure that we we're getting people excited about what's going on and and having an understanding of what's out there so um please reach out to me and um, we'll get you on the show enjoy the rest of your week and we'll speak to you next week thanks for listening guys and girls make sure you check out dev.office.com for all of our other podcasts and all of our amazing resources you can also check here for more information on our developer program where you can get a one year three developer tenant to stop building against the Office 365 platform we're always here to chat with you on the Office 365 technical network on aka.ms slash Office 365 dev podcast yam or you can follow us on Office Dev on both Twitter and Facebook so until next week guys Get coding.